0: Please turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. And as you're turning there, the title of this morning's message is The Beauty of a Christian Wife. The Beauty of a Christian Wife. And I can say that I approach this text of Scripture with some apprehension. Um, This is a difficult, a sensitive text of scripture, subject within the scriptures, and I would ask that you would pray for me this morning as I am nervous, and um, just that I would have clarity of thought uh, as I preach this word. I also want to acknowledge, before we read this text, that the focus and the target audience of this text is narrow, in that it does not only speak to women, but to married women, Um, which probably makes up less than a third of you who are here. But before the rest of you would sit back and relax, I'd like for you to consider um, how this relates to your life, because I think there is application within this scripture for everyone who is here this morning. To the single women, um, to those who may one day be wives, um, to consider how this subject or how this text of scripture relates to you to the single men who are considering the prospect of marriage um, and what to look for in a godly wife, in a beautiful Christian wife, and also to the married men uh, of how this text of scripture relates to the next verse that we'll read after uh, this, which is verse 7, which will, God willing, be my next sermon in two weeks from today in the afternoon. And um, I would encourage the men of those who can to come and uh, if you don't regularly come to Sunday afternoons, I would encourage you to come in two weeks' time from now um, to hear the preaching that will be directed specifically towards you. But to consider this text of scripture as well in how it relates to um, your command to love and to live with your wives in an understanding way. And my goal this morning is not um, to anger anyone though some things that I may say may not sit well with you. Uh, My goal this morning is to not preach the law, not to give you a list of do's and don'ts, but rather to preach with clarity and with conviction the Word of God. And I pray that you would also receive clarity and conviction from the Word of God this morning as I would expound the Scriptures to you. So in terms of where we're going, um, first I will read the passage uh, that we have, and then I will set the stage um, and just sort of uh, explain some of the current situation that we find ourselves in, both biblically and from a social and cultural perspective. Um, then I will explain the text, and then end with making some applications. So let's read together this text of Scripture, 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Peter writes, Likewise, you wives, be in subjection to your own husbands, that, if any obey not the word, they also may without the word be won by the conversation or conduct of the wives, while they behold your chase conversation coupled with fear. Whose adorning, let it not be the outward adorning of plating of the hair and of wearing of gold or the putting on of apparel, but let it be the hidden man of the heart in that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and a quiet spirit, which in the sight of God is of great price. For after this manner in old time, the holy women also, who trusted in God, adorned themselves, being in subjection unto their own husbands, even as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters ye are, as long as ye do well and are not afraid With any amazement. May God bless the reading of His Word. Before we look into the details of this text, I think it's important to begin by considering where we find ourselves. Where we find ourselves. And I'll make that more personal. Where do you find yourself this morning? Consider where you find yourself. And the reason that I bring this up as a sense of self-assessment, as it were, is that each of us, each of you, are prone to approach this subject with preconceived notions. Either a certain biblical understanding that has been taught or caught over time, with different social pressures and norms that we see within our society and within our culture, or even just your own experience and your upbringing and what you have gone through in your life that has somehow shaped in your mind an understanding of the subject that we have before us this morning. And as real as all of these things are, at the end of the day, none of them define, clearly define reality. They are all subjective in the sense that they are all made up of, of, of different influences that we have, like I said, either either been taught or have caught over time. And it is only in the scriptures and the truth of God's word that we can see reality defined clearly. And so it is through that lens that I would encourage you to approach this subject, and I pray that, that God would give me the wisdom and the grace to do that this morning as we consider this text of scripture and as it applies um, to you here this morning to examine your life, and to consider you where you find yourselves and how that relates to um, where God wants you to be. When it comes to this command for wives to submit to the authority of their husbands, I also want to acknowledge that this is a hard pill to swallow in many senses. Um, This is not a popular subject. This is a message that would not go over well with the majority of people within our culture today. Not just because our culture is so, I guess, against this notion or this idea um, or this principle, clear principle, that is laid out within Scripture. And and we'll talk more about the culture in a moment. But I think it goes much deeper than that. It's, in a sense hits a soft spot, um, it touches a nerve, as it were, and it goes much further back, and it goes much deeper, because there's something inside of each of you, and I'm speaking specifically here to the married women, there is something inside of each of you that does not want to submit. That does not want to submit. And this goes far back. This goes back to Adam and Eve in the garden. When Adam and Eve fell and sin entered into the world. And And we see what God said to Eve at that time in Genesis 3.16. Um, he says, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. and sorrow thou shalt bring forth children. And thy desire shall be for thy husband. Or your desire will be to control your husband but he shall rule over you. Something happened when sin entered into the world. Something changed. And the result of sin, the result of sin... It's not so much that, or is not that, as it says here, that the husband would rule over his wife. No, that was established even before the fall as an order of, of of authority that God established in creation. That That's not what is being referred to here. But what changed is that the wife, who once willingly submitted to her husband, joyfully, gladly submitted, would now have a desire, have a predisposition to control and to rule over her husband. That's what this verse says here. Your desire shall be for your husband. That's what God said to Eve. And that desire continues on to this day. There's something inside of each of you that does not want to submit. There is this something ingrained in your nature that fights against that. God-ordained authority. And even though you may be redeemed by Christ, even though you have experienced a transforming work of grace in your life, your flesh is not redeemed. And the consequences of sin remain to this day, just like the consequence of pain in childbirth, just like the consequence for Adam, that he would have to, to till the ground and that there would be weeds and that it would be difficult. Those things remain despite the fact that Christ has come to redeem you. And you will continue to struggle and fight against this desire until the day that you die. And what I'm about to say, I want to say cautiously, um, because I don't want to bring any unnecessary guilt on anyone, but it needs to be said, and it needs to be said with clarity. And it's this, that to not submit appropriately to your husband, and I'll define in a little bit what what that means, what I mean by appropriately, but to not submit appropriately to your husband and to his God-ordained authority in your life is sin. It's sin. And that's hard to take. I I have to lay it out, but it needs to be said. And there's two reasons. First of all, I don't want, I want you to to understand how serious this is. Um, I want you to feel the weight of what this command in scripture is saying. This is not a suggestion. This is not an ideal that Peter is laying forth. This is a command in scripture. It is something that was established in creation and ordained by God. And to break that, to go against that, is sin. And again, I, that statement alone would anger a good majority of the people in our society today. But it's true. And secondly, I don't want anyone leaving here today believing that you are okay. Thinking that you have, that you have not or you do not sin in this area. Because in one way or another, whether outwardly or inwardly in your heart, you do fall short in this. And in falling short, you have sinned. And in sinning, you must repent. And, and acknowledge that and repent. And if you're not willing to do that, then there is something wrong in your life. You need to examine yourself. James, or sorry, John 1 says that if you say that you have no sin, you are a liar and the truth is not in you. And again, I know that these are harsh words. I know that these words will cut deep in the hearts of some people, but they are true. And as true as it is that all of us have and and do fail in this area of submitting to God-ordained authority. And this can be expanded to not just the wives here, but to all aspects of authority. Because we are all under some authority in one sense or another as God has ordained it. In that same moment, and as cutting as these words are, I want to point you to Jesus Christ, who is the only one who submitted perfectly who was tempted in all ways as we were, was yet without sin, and who did what you could never do. Who did what you could never do, that he submitted perfectly to his heavenly Father. And it is only in him that you can be perfect, that you can find forgiveness That you can find grace and your perfection is not found in yourself. It is found only in Jesus Christ. It is found only in Christ. And I pray that that is where you find yourself this morning. That that is where you find yourself this morning. That you recognize your condition before God. And that you recognize your need for a Savior. Now, when it comes to your condition, your predisposition biblically... Nothing has changed from the time when Eve was in the garden until today. In terms of your condition, you still carry on, as a daughter of Eve, you carry on that same condition that she had, that Jesus declared on her when she fell into sin. But even though your condition has not changed, circumstances have changed. And I, I acknowledge that throughout history, there have been changes within circumstances and within time, within culture, within society, and the reality is, and I just I have to lay this out, is that we live in a time and a culture, especially within the last 50, 60 years, where there has been, at least in the Western culture, and specifically here within Canada and within North America, a shift, a dramatic shift with the rise of the feminist movement, um... As a, as a whole, just as a, as a general movement. And I want to take a, a, a quick bunny trail here just to talk to the mothers for a moment and also to the fathers. This applies to you very much so. that um, I want you to recognize what is going on in our culture. I want you to see, even though it may seem that it's slow, I think it's happened very quickly, actually, when you look at it in the grand scheme of history, but to see what is actually going on within our culture To recognize that and to not be naive to the fact that your children, that you and your children are being impacted by this movement. Whether it's the books that are being promoted to them, whether it's the material that they see at school, whether they watch things on TV um, or listen to, um, from the clothes that they wear, whatever it is, there is a movement And there is a direction that is happening within culture that you can very easily be swept up into. And I want to challenge you to consider, this is again, mothers and fathers, families, to consider what steps you are taking to protect your children, to combat this and to teach your children the truth of God's word as it is it is plainly laid out within scripture. And not to be swept away by the culture that's around us. Because the culture is on a mission. It is on a mission, and there is a movement that is happening, and they are coming after your children. You need to be aware of that. And this mission is wreaking havoc on society. We see it all around us. We see the breakdown of family. Just look at statistically how the family has changed from the 1950s to today. It's dramatically different. And I don't know all those statistics. I don't have those statistics to give to you, but I'm sure you can look it up and just observe it within society. You look around, you can see how things have changed. You can also see how it is infiltrating the family, how it's infiltrating the church specifically in subtle ways. Um, the effects are devastating. They're far reaching. We see the complementarian egalitarian debate that's raging in many churches today. We see the this again this rise of the feminist movement and how that is impacting the church. And truth is being abandoned in many fronts. And as some say, now there are some that say that this command that that Peter is giving here um, in First Peter chapter three, or also in Ephesians five, um, for wives to submit to their husbands, the they say that this is no longer relevant today. That according to our culture, this is not a relevant thing anymore. And the and the argument usually goes something like this: that the husband's authority over the wife, as a as sort of a social order, has changed with time, just as Again, you, they would sort of use the example that, you know, previously Peter was addressing servants or slaves and masters and this whole institution of slavery. And the argument would go that, well, that institution has been taken away and in the same, you know, it's been changed over time and culture. We don't have slavery anymore. And similarly, this institution has gone by the wayside. It's not relevant in our culture anymore. It has changed. But what that idea fails to recognize or to understand, is that marriage is not a human institution. It's not a human institution. Unlike slavery that was created and established by God, marriage and the order of authority is instituted by God. It has not been established by man. It's been instituted by God. And society is, is challenging that institution right now. We see over the last 20, 30 years how that institution has been challenged, that order of authority, and even the makeup of what a marriage and a family is, the definition of marriage between one man and one woman for life. We see that being challenged in the high courts of this land and um, in many countries throughout the world. And in some ways, that challenging makes sense. If you remove God from the picture... If you believe that God is not the one who instituted those authorities, then in some ways it makes sense because if you remove God, then you remove truth. And if you remove truth, then you have relativism where we define our own reality. You know, marriage um, is defined by us. Sexuality is defined by us. Morality is defined by us. We don't define those, or God doesn't define those things. We do, and we take that upon ourselves. But the scripture is clear that marriage and the order of authority was and is ordained and defined by God. Ephesians 5.23 says, For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. 1 Corinthians 11.3 says, The head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is the man, and the head of Christ is God. This was established in creation, and God is the one who defines And ordains this authority, and it raises the question: um, What does that say about women? Then, right? That's sort of a logical question. If if God has ordained and established that established that the man, just as as Christ is over the head of head of the church and over the man, and the man is head over his wife, what does that say about women? Does that mean that women are somehow less to men or inferior to men? The biblical answer to that question is no, um, though that may seem to be the perception on a surface level. The answer is no. Men and women are created equal before God. The scripture is clear about that. In, In Genesis 127, when God created man and woman, he said, so God created man in his own image. Male and female created he them. So we see this equality in their creation, yet we see a distinction of how God created them. We see equality equal yet distinct, each displaying the image of God in a unique way and sometimes in a way that only they can do. And we see as we look um, to both men and women in as created in the image of God and creating a clear picture for us of who God is, we see that there are aspects of a woman that can only be displayed and as, as, a, as, a, as a part of who God is, displaying the image of God, that only a woman can do that. And I think of probably the most obvious example of, of the, just demonstrating the love and the compassion of that a mother has for her child. That mother's love that really only a mother can have for their child. And that same depth of love that God has, that image that we see in the mother with her child, displays for us an aspect of the image of God displayed in that. And only the mother can do that. So we see they're equal yet distinct. This is the complementarian view. And it is this, that, that men and women, though equal, have separate or distinct or different God-given roles within marriage, within the family, within society, within the church. There's a difference in roles. And that difference in roles does not change the equality or the value of of that person. Submission does not imply inferiority. God made men and women to be equal, yet distinct. And we see this also displayed um, perfectly or beautifully in, in, again, I've mentioned this before, But Christ, um, the, the Son and the Father. We see that Christ is the Son. He is equal with the Father in essence, yet he submitted to the Father. 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty eight says, when all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. So we see how Jesus... The Son submitted to the Father. Though he's equal with the Father, that triune being, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, he is equal, yet he submitted. And in the same way, we see that it doesn't cancel it out. It doesn't mean that because you submit, that you are somehow less or inferior to. Likewise, our redemption in Christ, men and women, we are all equal in Christ. Galatians 3.28 says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, bond nor free, neither male nor female, for ye are all one in Christ. This is a beautiful thing. This is a beautiful, beautiful thing that we see in Scripture. Equal, yet distinct. So I want to take a few minutes just to go through these verses and just explain and unpack these verses together. Um, We see sort of three sections here. Verses 1 and 2 is is the command that's laid out. Verses 3 and 4, we see it illustrated. And then in verses 5 and 6, exemplified. So I'd encourage you to look with me here at the scriptures and and follow along as we just go through a few of these verses together. So, first the command in verses 1 and 2. Peter starts with the word, likewise. He says, likewise, you wives, be in subjection. To your own husbands. So, what Peter's doing is he's continuing on his thought. Um, though this is a new chapter, it's a, it's a continuation of what he's already built up to this point. He says, "Likewise, or similarly, or just as," and he's referring to the illustrations that he's given earlier. So, we we talked two sermons ago um, about the uh, importance of citizens being um, in submission to the government. And then we talked about slaves or servants being subject to their masters. And in the same way and for the same reasons, Peter now says, likewise, wives, be subject or submit to your own husbands. We have to remember through this all the the context here, right? We go back to chapter 2, verse... 12, I believe it is, talking about our conversation and, and the, the the witness of our life, that it's all really about our, our witness and how we display the glory of God through the lives that we live. And, and you know, as Peter comes to chapter 3 here, he, he's given these examples. He's talked about citizens, um, you know, submitting to the government, servants, submitting to masters, and then he says, he, here's another one here, wives, submit to your husband's Submit to your husbands. And I, I think just that whole idea of submission and how, even how that can be a, um, a testimony is perhaps hard for us to understand as we have a culture that has such a distorted view of what submission actually is. Their definition is wrong. Um, our culture in many ways defines this. You think of it in the context of, of, of a wife submitting to her husband, that to submit is just blindly following. It's about, you know, having no say, having no influence, having no rights. You know, you are just a second class citizen or of, of, of lesser value. If that's how you view submission, then you this won't make any sense. And the reality is that nothing could be further from the truth. As we look at the scriptures and we understand how submission works, and God willing, we'll hopefully go through that and and look at some more examples of what that really is, nothing could be further from the truth. The scripture is clear that true submission, and let's look at this in the context of, of within marriage, and the wife and the husband, is that the wife honoring, true submission is the wife honoring and affirming her husband's leadership and using her gifts and abilities to help him carry out his God-given responsibilities. It's that concept of being a helpmeet. And again, this goes back to the garden. This goes back before the fall. This goes back to creation, where Adam said, is there anyone to be a helpmeet for me? And God provided him the wife to be that. So we see the definition of submission and of what everything that, that 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 looks like and involves and entails is defined within scripture. And our culture has that so skewed. It has it it backwards in so many senses. It, again, it does not mean that submission does not mean you 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 follow blindly. It does not mean that um, her the wife's opinion does not matter. It does not mean that she never challenges her husband. It does not mean that she doesn't try to influence her husband. In fact, in fact, if we look at the next part of this verse here, it actually shows us that of how the wife can and should be an influence to her husband and the way the appropriate way for that to take place but our culture doesn't understand that they they have a wrong view of submission and re- and and their answer is that re- there is a sense of rebellion against that authority but the rebellion against authority is not the way to influence it is not about standing up and picketing with signs And calling for your rights and trying to take dominance over the ordained authority that God has established. Rebellion against authority does not, is not the way to influence. And this is really what the culture has completely wrong and does not understand. And where the, where the feminist movement sees strength in rebellion and weakness in submission, the scriptures paints for us the picture exact opposite. We see it's a, it's an exact Inverse of the message that the world is creating where it sees rebellion as strength and submission as weakness. The scripture says, no, it's the opposite. True, genuine, heartfelt submission is a beautiful and is a very impactful thing. And we see that here in this verse as it says that likewise you wives submit to your husbands that if any obey not the word, they also may without the word be wanly. By the conversation or the conduct of the wives, while they behold your chaste conversation. it's talking about influence here. It's talking about influencing your husband, and, and Peter is—he's laying out a specific scenario here, right? I mean, the the, the principle, the, the scenario here is one of a, of a wife who is a believer and of a husband who is an unbeliever. Now, this this text of scripture applies to all wives, but more specifically, Peter seems to. Go to the extreme, as it were. And he paints the picture here of almost the most difficult scenario that you can find yourself in. And, and you can, you can imagine the resistance of <clears throat> the wife who would be reading this and hearing this command that, that Peter is giving, this instruction that Peter is giving. And she says, okay, you know, submit to your husband. Okay. If, what if, if he's a believer? Sure. No problem. That's easy to do. But what if he's not a believer? You know, what if he doesn't honor the Lord? What if he does not Love me the way that he's called to love me as a husband. You know, what if he does not manage our household well? What about that situation? But God, this scripture makes it clear. Peter, Peter almost anticipating that resistance jumps to the hardest scenario just like he did with servants or slaves and masters he says not don't don't just slaves should not just submit to the good masters but also to the unjust masters those who are difficult those who are hard to submit to submit even to them he goes to the most difficult hard scenario and why what's the reason he gives the reason he says that they also may without a word be won by the conduct of their wives that's incredible think about that for a moment that they may be won by by the conduct of their wives. Think about that. Whether the husband is a believer or not, whether your husband is a believer or not, you can win him, you can gain him by the way that you honor and submit to his authority. That's what this verse is saying here. So wives, if you want to have an impact on your husbands, do you want to influence them? Do you get frustrated when Your husband is not being the spiritual lever that he's called to be. What do you do in those situations? How do you respond in those moments? Are you going to overstep his authority? Are you going to take things into your own hands? Or will you trust the Lord and trust what this scripture says, that even without a word, through your obedience, through your submission, and we'll talk more about what that looks like, that you can influence him. Again, this doesn't mean that you never speak truth to Him. That's important to speak truth. Doesn't mean that you never challenge Him. Doesn't mean that you don't guide and work towards guiding and, and and your family and the responsibility that you have as a wife and as a mother. My wife does these things all the time and it's right and it's good. But at the end of the day, you submit to God ordained authority. That's what you are called to, to submit to His God ordained authority and trust, trust that the Lord can work through that and that your actions can speak louder than your words as it says here in verse two while they behold your chase conversation coupled with fear they are beholding they are watching they are looking and they will see something in that a heart of submission submission and the true beauty the true beauty of a christian wife This is true beauty. And Peter illustrates that in the next verses. Let's continue on verses 3 and 4. He says, Whose adorning, let it not be that outward adorning of plating the hair and of wearing of gold or the putting on of apparel, but let it be the hidden man of the heart in that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and a quiet spirit, which in the sight of God is of great price. Peter is illustrating here for us in these verses what true beauty is, what true beauty is, and where it comes from. It comes from the heart, that which is incorruptible, as he says, the ornament, the apparel, the dress of a meek and a quiet spirit, that heart of submission. And that is what God values, and that is what you should value. It's true beauty. And Peter starts out here in verse 3, he states it first in the negative, right? He he talks about what it is not. He says, let your adorning, let what, what, what you wear and what displays and what shows, let your adorning, let it not be the outward adorning of plating the hair and of wearing of gold and of putting on of apparel. He says, don't let these things be that. And, and you know, this particular verse has been used as a, a proof text to support our church's position of not wearing jewelry, And I think when you really, really boil this verse down, try to get to the essence of what it is saying, saying that what you wear outwardly, what you wear outwardly is not the most important thing. I think that's what this verse is really trying to get at when it says that let it not be the outward adorning of the plating of hair, the wearing of gold, the putting on of apparel, What you wear outwardly is not the most important thing, but rather, true beauty comes from within. True beauty comes from within. It's not what you wear on the outside that makes you beautiful, but who you are on the inside that makes you beautiful. And as we apply this, I think the the, the application is correct, that, that, that what you wear, this is really a principle here, that what you wear should not be the focal point of who you are. And I want to be careful, I think we need to be careful, to not make this verse say something that it does not say. This verse is not telling us what or what not to wear. It talks about the plating of hair. The, the literal translation of that is the braiding of hair. I don't think anybody would say that it's wrong to, for a, a, a girl to braid her hair. Um, it's talking about the wearing of gold. That's clearly talking about jewelry, just wearing of gold on your body, whatever that might be. Talking about the putting on of apparel, again, literal translation is just wearing clothes. So it's not that any of these things are wrong in and of themselves, but it is, if any of these things, if there is an excess of any of these things, do I believe that tasteful makeup or jewelry or wearing beautiful clothes that adds to the natural beauty of a wife is wrong in and of itself? No, I don't. I don't believe that for a moment. There is something in a woman that desires to be beautiful. I think that's God-given. That's in your nature, and that's, that's a good thing within your nature. And it's something that I don't think is right to be in a man. It would be wrong in a man. It's something that is God-given. And none of these things in and of themselves wrong or sinful. But here's the principle. None of these things should be what people notice most about you. When people look at you, when people see you, it is not what they should notice most about you. And if your outward adorning, whatever it might be, covers or eclipses your inward beauty, then I would say with Peter, let it not be so and i'm not here to set a standard i'm not here to tell you what and what you cannot do i have that responsibility as a husband for my wife and for my for my daughters but i'm not i don't have that responsibility and i cannot give that to you from this verse and from the scriptures explicitly but i think the principle is there that if and and, and consider this when you're you know for you wives when you and and you ladies when you're considering what to wear ask yourself the question does this draw attention to myself? Does this draw attention to my body? Does this draw attention to some part of me that I want to, that becomes the focal point, that becomes the most obvious thing when someone looks at me? And if that's the case, then I would say it's gone too far. It's, you, you probably should not be wearing it. And Again, I'm not here to give a standard of what that is, but I think the scripture gives us the principle that we can work with here. And that true beauty is, as it says here in verse 4, the ornament or the adorning of a meek and a quiet spirit. And I don't want also us to, to think that, that somehow that's talking about a personality, right? We all have different personalities. Different women have different personalities. Some are very quiet and timid. That's not what this verse is saying here, that, you know, we should take on some type of personality, but rather that... We should be filled with the fruits of the Spirit. This is talking about the fruits of the Spirit, of humility, of gentleness. And you may be a very bold and outgoing and outspoken person, and you can be that. That may be your personality. But you can still, in that moment, take on what it says here, the adorning of a meek and a quiet spirit, that humility and that gentleness, and that is of great value to God. And if you're preoccupied with clothes, with jewelry, with makeup, Trying to make yourself beautiful on the outside, but your heart is not right, then you've missed it. God is most concerned. He is most concerned with your heart. <clears throat> Before we move on, I just want to make one more point to this. I'm talking about sort of outward adorning and sort of that show. When it comes to the showing of outward adornment, I want to make a particular application that I think Applies specifically within our context and our our practice of wearing a head covering. You, the head covering is a sign of submission. You can show that outwardly. You can wear a head covering to church. You can wear a head covering every day, all day. But if you are, if you do not have a heart of submission, if you defy your husband's authority, then that head covering that you wear means absolutely nothing. It means absolutely nothing. This is not an outward show. Again, let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and a quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God of great price. And I just, I want to challenge us specifically with that here within our congregation as this is something that we hold to and that we Uphold within our church to consider that to seriously consider that what you wear on your head does not necessarily define or show the fact that you have submission in your heart. Is it a good thing? Yes. Biblically, I believe it is an appropriate thing to do, even within the culture that we live in. But if you are wearing a head covering to church, if you are wearing a head covering every single day, and you do not have that heart of submission, if you defy your husband's authority, then your head covering means nothing. Let's move on. The command, we see it illustrated. Now, finally, the example, exemplified in verses 5 and 6, as we wrap this up. Verses 5. For after this manner, in the old time, the holy women also, who trusted in God, adorned themselves, being in subjection unto their own husbands. Even as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters ye are, as long as ye do well, and are not afraid with any amazement or fearfulness. You know this verse here is is talking about the holy women within scripture and within the Old Testament and who have left us an example and it mentions specifically Sarah by name here. It talks about Abraham's wife, Sarah. And we don't have, unfortunately, the, the time to go into all the details of how she submitted to Abraham. But I would challenge you to, to look to her example. And also to look to other examples of women of faith within the scriptures who adorned themselves in this way. Who, as it says here, trusted in God. And to look to them and to, to see how they adorned themselves in submitting to their husbands, in following this God ordained authority. And I also want to make just a quick point here to the older women within the older married women within the congregation here. And also challenge you to consider the responsibility, we're talking about example here, the responsibility that you have to be an example and to teach the younger women, the, the the scripture is very explicit in that, in Titus chapter two, where it says the aged women may te- that the aged women may teach the younger women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be obedient to their own husbands. Why? It says here that the word of God may be not blasphemed. Again, this links it back to the witness, to the testimony that the word of God may not be blasphemed. That's again wraps up what what Peter is referring to here. This is all about the testimony of a witness, of how our submission, how the wife's submission to authority can be an example and a testimony to her husband and to the world that she belongs to the Lord and testimony testified to the gospel and displaying that inward inward beauty that we are called to and I want to challenge again the 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 older women to consider the example and the role that you play in in being an example and teaching the younger women in this finally application we'll wrap this up with application I want to speak as we close here to two women to two wives and there's a good chance that you are one of these two wives here this morning And the first wife I want to speak to is the wife who struggles with how to respond to a husband who is either an unbeliever, who rejects the truth of the gospel, or who professes Christ but is not a godly husband, who does not take spiritual leadership, who is perhaps Drifting from the truth and and from his role as a godly husband. And he is hard to obey, to submit to, to follow. And maybe for you it's been years. And you have prayed, you have tried everything. And nothing seems to be working. And the darkness will not lift in your life in this area. And you are struggling with this fact. And there's a temptation inside of you to, to, to give up and to, to, to rise above his authority and to take things into your own hands because he's not doing that. And this is a hard, hard place to be and I, I want to acknowledge that I don't take this lightly, you know, as I consider that there are wives here who struggle with this, who genuinely struggle with this in your life to varying degrees. And, and, and I, I understand how hard this is, especially when you add children into the equation. And, you know, in these situations, you know, it requires a, a special role from you as a mother to know how to handle that, to fill in the gaps when your husband, again, is not a believer or do, or professes Christ but is not being a godly husband, is not taking that spiritual leadership. How do you respond in those moments? And I pray that God would give you grace, that he would give you wisdom to know how to respond, to apply these principles of Scripture and to do that with wisdom and grace without usurping his God-given authority. But even in the midst of that, I, I want to challenge you as you as you struggle with that to not give in to the temptation to rise above, to take things into your own hands, to usurp his authority, but rather to trust that your husband can be won by your faithfulness in honoring and submitting to his God-ordained authority. Again, that does not mean that you follow along with his sin. There is limits to this. Um, your allegiance is first to Christ, and you always must honor him, and, and, and you cannot go along with with sin, obviously. It doesn't mean, again, that you, you remain silent, that you never speak truth to him. There is a, a time and a place and a role for that. But if you have spoken truth, and it's not working, and you are not getting through, and you're doing everything that you can and feel like you can, and it's not working, I want to to, to encourage you with this, to, to trust in the scripture, to trust in what these verses say, that he may be won, he may be gained, he may be saved without a word through your faithful testimony. You have to believe this scripture, that, that, that it is true, rather than throwing out this principle and taking matters into your own hands. And and I cannot guarantee that it will impact him. The scripture does not say that. Again, in verse 1 here, it says that he may be one. There's a possibility, there's a potential that he may be one. He, and, and, and you may be a faithful wife for your entire life and it not have an impact on him. And that's hard for me to say because I want to tell you that, oh, if you do this, it will happen. And I cannot give that to you. The scripture does not give that to you. But your calling is to trust and obey in the sovereign God and to embrace from the heart your husband's God-appointed position as head and leader within your home, as hard as that may be. The second wife I want to speak to is... The wife whose tendency it is to dominate and to take control over your husband, not necessarily because of his incompetence or his lack of leadership, but because you want control, because you want to be in control. You want to call the shots and you don't trust your husband. It's hard to trust your husband. You don't want to trust him because you know what's better. You don't want to listen. You don't want to follow his lead because it doesn't make sense to you sometimes. And there's a warning. This is a warning and there's a danger. And I want to lay this out to you that your sin may be stifling your husband from doing and from being who God created him to be. I want you to consider that your sin in wanting that control, in taking over, taking things into your own hands and 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 not following him as God has called you to appropriately that it is that it can stifle your husband from doing and being who God has created him to be and as as you you sort of in you know, a in a way um, create a trench of, of how your family functions and your roles. I want you to consider this, the impact that it has, that it can and does have on your family. And that your desire to control may actually be putting your family at greater risk. And that your sin may be robbing your family of the blessings that come from functioning the way that God has called you To function and the way that God intended it and that is that of a husband who leads, who, who, who loves his wife, who loves his children and leads them and a wife who honors and submits to her husband in an appropriate way. And remember this as well, that ultimately it is your husband who will give an account before God. Do not forget that it is your husband who will need to give an account for your family before God in Judgment Day, and you usurping his authority, you taking that control, is having an impact on that and can, in many ways, damage, cause more damage than it will cause good of what you see in your mind. Your duty is to embrace from the heart your husband's God-appointed position as head and leader, to honor and affirm his leadership, and to use your gifts and your abilities to help him to carry that out. This is... The true beauty of the Christian wife. The true beauty of the Christian wife. And this is the adornment of a godly woman, as it says, and I'll wrap up with this verse here in Proverbs thirty-one, ten: Who can find a virtuous woman? For her price is far above rubies, and the heart of her husband doth safely trust in her. And this is my prayer for each of you this morning, that you would see clearly from the word of God what a truly beautiful Christian wife looks like, and to honor the Lord through that in everything that you say and do. May God bless his word to each of us and may it challenge us and impact us in our lives. Amen.